Hello and welcome to Newsnight. I am Ladi Akiri Dolwale. It's our pleasure to have you be with us today. Nigeria's security challenges are inextricably linked to its poor economic situation and no solutions will work unless this is recognized and factored in. Meanwhile, the argument about zoning versus merit is a myth stemming from a one-off situation which in reality has not been complied with as in all elections since 1999. My guest today will declare a state of emergency in security on day one of his presidency and believes participation and selection of candidates should be a merit-driven process. Newsnight talks to the chairman of the Renaissance Development Forum, former chairman of the Nigeria Economic Summit Group and presidential aspirant of the People's Democratic Party, PDP, Alhaji Mohammed Hayatuddin. Thank you for your time. Welcome. Thank you. You've been traveling uh, across the country, trying to woo the delegates of your party ahead of the primaries. From what you've seen so far, what would be the number one thing that they want addressed? if and when you become president? What is the first thing they want you to address? There's so much bloodshed in the land. And this is a matter that covers and envelopes the entire society. Therefore, the number one thing is the national security problem. That's what they would like to see addressed. And wherever I have gone, I made this promise that on May 29th, 2023, if I get elected president, I will declare a national security emergency in the country. Similar to the kind of thing that we did, if you recall, back in 1996 on the Vision 2010 program, we'd like to bring in a broad spectrum of stakeholders into a room for a period of probably three to six months, drawn from all segments of society. Because national security, as it is currently unfolding, affects all segments of our society. And it does not remain within the exclusive preserve of the government, but there are many people who are affected and who deal with it on a daily basis. So it is therefore important to bring in the academia, especially people who are specialized in national security issues, retired national security officers, regardless of whether they're in the police, the intelligence services, or the armed forces. People who are serving in government in various capacities, labor, youth, women. And if you recall, under Vision 2010, even youth corpus were there, all molders and shapers of opinion. So the problem can then be diagnosed in a holistic manner and then a range of prescriptive solutions can then be developed for purpose of dealing with it. But in dealing with it, to ensure that we're able to come up with an actionable program with defined timelines and the responsibility matrix for purposes of arresting this issue once and for all. I might, however, add, and we'll come to that later on, that dealing with it means that you're actually temporarily pushing it back. The fundamental thing is the economy. 
These things are happening because people actually feel hopeless. They feel they have got no productive life to live and they're despondent and they've given up. So they've taken it upon themselves to help themselves. And for them, the end justifies the means. Even if the collateral damage being inflicted on the rest of society uh, is mind-boggling. Given that what we have witnessed in the last decade or so has been what some people have described as the politicization of security. Um, those who know about security will tell you it's an all-encompassing approach that usually gets adopted, regardless of your political affiliation, your gender affiliation, your religious affiliation, and so on. But over the last decade or thereabouts in Nigeria, some of these things have crept into the security discourse, and some have said that has tended to sidetrack those who are in charge, those who should act. Um, do you think that is part of our problem? I think this is just a bunch of excuses that people are giving. I'm not saying that it might not exist, but even if it exists, it's a fundamental weakness in governance. Because we elect governments into office, empower them, with a vast security infrastructure. Men and women of the armed forces, the police, the intelligence services, empower them using the treasury with equipment and weapons. The state has sole monopoly of violence under the constitution and therefore should not under any circumstances, allow any agent, private agent, to actually interfere with the process of prosecuting a very viable and sustainable security agenda for the country. This is happening mainly because, in my view, you know, governance is very, very weak. The other thing, of course, having to do with uh, security is the fact that, and you alluded to it in your answer to the last question when you said the state is supposed to have the monopoly of the forces of coercion. Um, again, given our experience in the last couple of years, that is no longer obviously the case. Um, there are outside forces, both outside in terms of outside of government and outside of Nigeria, that are now having uh, uh, impact on our security situation. And um, if you take, for example, the Southeast, only a couple of hours before this interview, uh, there's, a, there's a lawmaker in uh, Anambra State mm -hmm. who first was kidnapped and then beheaded. And he's from the local government of the governor, Professor Saludo. I, I use that only as an example to illustrate uh, that these are things that are happening seemingly every day. Uh, in Kaduna, a couple of weeks ago, the same thing happened with a priest who was captured and because nobody paid the ransom asked, he was killed. I, I only give these two examples to illustrate to you that it appears as if the problem has gone beyond what might have been the regular solution now and involves a lot more people. I was talking to someone before, uh, before talking to you who mentioned the fact that uh, 
international terrorist organizations like ISWAP and Al-Qaeda and so on have found inroads in here, in Nigeria. So I raise all this because I'm thinking, are you thinking of all these ramifications in terms of how you are going to address it? Yes, yeah, so let me uh, say that since 9-11, the very definition of security around the world, especially in advanced climates, has been redefined in a very radical way. So there is no more a very narrow definition of security in terms of guns and bullets and the states and the enemies. There is now a more wholesome and more holistic definition of security with many interlinking parts. And they are all interrelated. None of them are mutually exclusive from the other. Unless you get all of them right, as a society and as a government and as a people, the likelihood is that you touch one to try to solve it. If the others remain under, unattended to, then you are actually back to square one. So we need to bring all of them together. First and foremost, I think that there are five pillars. One is the economic security of the nation. The second is social security. The third is energy security. I use energy very carefully to separate it from economic security, even though they are in very much interlinked. There's climate security, given you know, our changing world. And then there is diplomatic security. And there is then what you call security in terms of the force, you know, in terms of using coercion to deal with problems. People tend to look at this thing from a very narrow lens of taking one or the other. My own view is that unless you are able to see this as an integrated set of issues, which need to be diagnosed and implemented in a fairly methodical and sequential manner, you will actually always sub-optimize whatever it is you want to achieve. So you need a grand vision of security. The underlying issues that we face today are basically economic in nature. I cannot remember, quite frankly, Lai, ever a time that this country has, been, has felt so hopeless and has given up on issues. 25 years ago, and nations go through these picks and troughs, you know, ups and downs. You go through a problem. The leaders of the country will come out and give clarity and purpose as to why these problems exist. They also provide a solution. They clearly define the role the government would play, the role that the rest of society, civil society, private sector, other agents play. Even the role that diplomatic agencies uh, around in the country also play. People come together in order to solve them. So you can always see light at the end of the tunnel. What Nigerians have seen is darkness. It's very, very hard to predict that when you're faced with a problem that you're able to deal with it quickly. 
That's number one. Number two, at the root of all of what we are talking about is an economic issue. If you and I and John and Peter and Ahmed and Bukhar and Ekemefuna and Tayo are all doing well, that our standard of living is pretty good, the 210 million Nigerian people, that people are satisfied that they can actually get a decent meal three times a day, they have a roof over their heads, that they can feel safe at home on the streets and on the highways, that they can go about their daily chores and enjoy life and celebrate life and their families, that they can afford to send their children to good schools, that they can get good health care, that they can save for a rainy day, that they can go on vacation. There will be no incentive on the part of anybody to want to foment trouble. So at the root of it is an economic problem. Let's go to the next one, which is social security. For you and I, we grew up in times that were excellent, so to speak, relative to now, in terms of the ethos and values of society. Nigerians, Nigeria itself was a well-ordered society where there was some modicum of discipline, where ethos and values were highly respected People played more or less by the rules. And deviants was, were actually sanctioned, even by community leaders. Right now, we're dealing with a situation in which our social values have completely imploded. And it's in its place is drugs, is guns, is fraud on a very big scale, both in the public space and also on the fringes of the private space. If people do not have a sense of identity and of who they are as human beings, and they become something else entirely, it's very, very difficult to get this thing going. Overlaying that is the issue of education and health, population and the environment. These things need to be you know, we need to get a handle on these things. And they are the bedrock upon which you can build everything else. A society does not, that does not have values, does not have character, is no society at all. Even in this house or in your own home, you provide leadership and you're the role model and you set standards and goals. Energy security is the next one. With regards to energy security, there are many components of it. One is the fact that Nigeria is so blessed by natural resources and hydrocarbons. But today, we're unable to utilize it effectively in order to generate prosperity for our own people. Instead, for the last God knows how many decades, we import a lot of um, petrochemical products, which we actually produce here in terms of crude oil we swap it for petroleum products because our institutions are not functioning. Refineries and petrochemical plants. Other countries around the Gulf, in Asia and other places, have been able to deal with this problem effectively. So we've got no energy security. As a result, you find prices, you know, getting completely out of control of diesel, of PMS, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The other component of it is the power sector.
they are interrelated. These days, people power their electricity or their plants using gas. And the entire system is decrypted, so energy security is important. Climate security is critical because while you and I are hunkered down, dealing with everyday issues of bread and butter, and of queuing up for petrol and other things, the rest of the world is actually racing ahead to look at the next 100 years, to see how our world is changing very rapidly from a climate perspective because of global warming. And they're inventing all kinds of mechanisms in order to deal with this issue. But more importantly, advances in technology has made it possible for them to actually devise other forms of renewable energy that they are now using on airplanes, motor vehicles, and all other forms of transportation and other assets. I guarantee you that Europe, for example, wants to phase out all motor vehicles within the next 15 to 20 years that are actually being powered by, uh, by, fossil by, fuels. by fossil fuels. So it's a very serious issue. So you need a president who actually is not just dealing with yesterday's issues and today's issues, but is able to lift his sights, lift his own sights, to see what are tomorrow's issues that we need to deal with today so that it doesn't catch up with us and make life impossible for us. Niger, the, we are dealing with a globe that is a small village interconnected through information and technology grid. Information travels, as you know better than I do, at the speed of light. And therefore, it behooves us to actually integrate ourselves into the rest of the world and make sure that we're able to understand what is going on and get Nigeria, you know, interconnected so that we become a respectable member of the international community. Allow me to, before we go to your 40, the economy, allow me to ask this fairly general question because your very candidacy raises it and others in your position. Uh, the, of course, I'm sure you're aware that the two parties, two major parties, have not ended up, in spite of all the arguments and all the debates, zoning their candidates to any particular area, especially at the presidential level. And um, there are still those who say, why should a house of Fulani Muslim succeed another house of Fulani Muslim in a country where you have 350 to 400 ethnic groups? Now, in your case, that would apply, wouldn't it? So what arguments do you have for those who raise that and say that it's the turn of others? What do you say to them? Well, that sounds like an allocation system. Rather than practicing um, universal norms of democracy, in my view. This has antecedents, and I'll be very quick about this. 1998-99, going back to 1992-93, the election of Abiola created a huge problem in this country, huge. 
extraordinary times require extraordinary solutions. The gray-haired men of the time decided in their wisdom that there is a need for pacification. Consciously and deliberately, not based on the Constitution, not based on the universal principles of democracy, the elders whom you need in every society to stabilize a society when it is actually going up in flames, decided in their wisdom that Obasanjo should be pushed forward by PDP. One. Two. Even then, there were other people who actually contested the primaries along with him. Limi withdrew at the last minute. Philip Asuid actually contested all the way. And that's the way democracy should be. If people got into a room, given an extraordinary situation to deal with that problem. It's now how many years, for God's sake? It's almost uh, one generation between 98 to date. And this country has matured, I believe, to a point where things that were done in backroom channels, informally, should not now morph into an official script that needs to be followed. So that's number one. Number two, at the time this was done, no referendum was held. Certainly they didn't give my permission or your own permission to do it. It was done because these people were, it was felt they were elders and they were doing the right thing. People accepted and moved on. Number three, given the conditions that we live in, the world has changed in such a profound manner that successful nations have moved on. I'm not aware of any nation that has become so successful that has decided to allocate either his prime message for his pre presidency on the basis of allocating to particular regions. We need to build this nation and make it into a united, indivisible, single entity. For all of us to be identified first and foremost by our national identity as Nigerians, while we celebrate our own diversity. The other point I'd like to make on this is the fact that Nigeria is in a very deep and grave crisis at this point in time. And what you need is an extraordinary kind of leadership that is highly competent, that is patriotic, has character, that understands this country through and through, that is highly exposed to world affairs, and that is able to speak to the issues of the moment. Like I told you earlier on, the code that we need to crack is the economic code. And I have deep-seated knowledge of economics. I had been a general manager of major institutions in this country, where I'd been saddled with the responsibility of engineering and transforming institutions and making them very successful. I ran the single largest diversified holding company in this country, the largest, in fact, south of the Sahara, 
with 145 companies reporting into my office at a tender age of 30 years. Which was? The New Nigeria Development Company. Similar to other sister institutions like the Western Nigeria Development Corporation and the Eastern Nigeria Development Corporation. The WNDC morphed into Odwell Investments, but NNC was by far the largest. We were here in Lagos with you when I was given charge of the defunct Post Office Savings Bank or the Federal Savings Bank and given a mandate to carry out a radical transformation which I have done. I have served with many presidents on advisory councils. I was on President Buhari's transition committee and I was given responsibility for the economy. When President Jonathan was actually trying to stabilize his government, that transition from Yoradua to him before the election. General T. White was appointed chairman of the Presidential Advisory Committee and I was appointed chairman of the Committee on the Economy under General Njuma. So I have traveled far and wide in this country. I've been to unity schools, from primary school to secondary school to university. I have mixed with all men of Nigerians from all kinds of language groups, tribal groups, geographies, religious persuasions. What I bring to the table is the identity of a quintessential Nigerian who does not see this country through any other prism, but through Nigeria. Most importantly, I have fully dedicated myself and my service to a life of serving this country. And wherever I have served, essentially what I have done is to ensure that I'm able to actually get the very best of Nigerians from all walks of life, men and women, young men and women who are very dynamic, very energetic, who are giving their life and soul to the institutions that they were serving. And that but nothing, nothing else. So this is actually what has defined me. And I believe that Nigeria needs me at this particular point in time because of my very unique background and circumstances, coupled with the very nature of the problems that Nigeria is facing today. So it's going to be a round peg in a round hole. I might also add that in the history of the world, various nations face problems at certain points in time. Leaders rise to meet the peculiar circumstances of any particular country at a given point in time quickly. Churchill. England was being obliterated in the Second World War. They needed somebody with his kind of profile and character and disposition to be able to rescue them from the abuse. Otherwise, Hitler would have overrun them in no time. He wasn't good for peacetime subsequently and lost that election. De Gaulle was needed in France at the time. Or even coming closer to our contemporary times, the person who has occupied our television screens in Vietnam is Zelensky. This man was a stand-up comedian. Nobody gave him one chance in the world. Look at him today, standing so tall as if he's been a military general all his life, or a president who has been fully prepared in the political sense of the word. So leaders emerge to actually meet 
the extraordinary needs and demands of the time. And then Nigeria is now facing that unique moment. We are standing on the brink, and if we are not careful, this country will dissolve. So merit is by far the most important consideration in dealing with the issues of this country. And I assure you that if I'm lucky in actually becoming president, there is not a single soul in this country who will say that Mohammed is either rooting for his family, his tribal group, or his religion. Mohammed will be a Nigerian who will work for all Nigerians as a father of the nation. I will give every Nigerian equal opportunity, equal rights, with, based on the principles of fairness, equity, and justice. But you are not going to come into my government simply because I know you, or simply because you come from somewhere. It's not going to work, because you are going to make my job ugly, and you'll make the country ugly in the process. Let's come to the economy. Um, Nigeria is well known for having beautiful documents uh, to signpost its economic development. Uh, I believe we had our first national development plan uh, as far back as 1962, and we continued to have others all the way until the 80s. Uh, you alluded to it in the answer to one of your previous questions when you talked about vision. Uh, there was a vision 2020. Uh, very few people noticed when we passed 2020 uh, and we didn't achieve uh, those objectives. And um, so it, I guess it's not that we don't know what needs to be done. There have been copious uh, attempts to find out what's wrong. And we have, in fact, found out what's wrong. Where we seem to always fall short is in having the willpower to implement what needs to be done to get us to where we think we ought to be. And now you say that it has become an existential problem because it has now drawn in insecurity, unemployment and all of that. First, broadly speaking, what would be the first couple of things you're going to do immediately? Uh, some people call them low-hanging fruit that you're going to get immediately to show that things are changing and therefore give hope to those who will be looking to say, OK, maybe if I exercise a bit of patience, more will come. What would those things be? Okay, so uh, this is an excellent question. I have observed over the last 30, 35 years that the major institutions of government have been eroding fairly rapidly and now actually completely compounded. Those are the vehicles that you actually require to be able to deliver public goods and services to Nigerians. Without a very strong and robust public service, A, represented in the office of the president, by having a team of dedicated men and women with very clear functional responsibilities, because the presidency is a vital nerve center of operations. If you get a weak there, that weakness is going to cascade throughout the rest of our public institutions of the presidency, the cabinet, the ministries, and I dare say the government paracelsus and agencies. Those are the revenue earning 
entities of the government. They often get neglected. Somebody wakes up and says, oh, I will appoint an MD for Nigerian Post Authority. That's as important as actually appointing an MD for UAC or for Citibank. So these institutions need to be reformed from the bottom up. Our public servants are dedicated people. And if they can find somebody who is a star for them, who is actually working with them or running with them, working together with them in order to actually revitalize and reform these institutions and get corruption minimized to, to the barest level, then I think you would have started well. So I would say that that's one of the first things that will actually occupy my priority. And when I say public institutions, it just doesn't stop there. The police, the armed forces, the judiciary is extremely important in terms of having judges that are very strong, that defend the law, adjudicate justice with speed, that sanctity of contracts are respected. All of these things are actually needed. The president has got enormous powers of moral situation, and he has a megaphone. And he has to work very closely with the legislature to make sure that both the executive and the legislature are actually working to govern in the public interest, not to just look after themselves. So moral probity is very, very important. Nothing is going to work in my own judgment in this country, given how, how much erosion we have seen in the quality of service delivery. So that President Obasanjo has actually attempted to do that, if you recall. Yes, and set public, public sector, I think, public reform? Public reform. We need to take, to take this to a whole new level. There is no emerging market power today around the world, whether it is the UAE or Qatar or Rwanda or Malaysia or China or South Korea, any one of them, where you do not have a best-in-class you know, public service. So that's number one. Number two, speaking directly to your question, we need to have a very strong bias towards implementation and execution. Producing a plan, to me, is only 20%. You could be the most beautiful plan, and it will just remain on the shelves. So you need to be able to implement that plan. In order to implement it, you need to bring a broad coalition of stakeholders. So you have very active and energetic public servants along the lines that I defined. You need to establish seamless collaboration with the private sector because they are partners in progress. The government is an enabler. The people who produce goods and services are the private sector. And you, Nigerian people, by their very nature, are the most entrepreneurial human beings that I've actually ever, ever seen on this planet. Our only competitor will be some countries in Asia, but especially the United States. If we can actually unleash all of that creative energy and cascade it throughout the economy, Nigeria should be posting something in order of 10% annual growth sustained over a period of 10 to 15 years. I've got no doubt in my mind, because we are starting from a very low, from a very low base. From a very low base. Coupled with that is the need for you to have regulation 
the regulatory and compliance environment has to be very, very strong. So when people are out online, you actually checkmate them and get them to behave by taking remedial action. But most importantly, government should stay out of the way. All of these toll gates need to be dismantled. And you then need to give people a range of incentives. When you say toll gates, do you mean the bureaucratic process? The bureaucratic of process and all the bribery that takes place. Wherever you go, you don't get a service that is rightfully that you rightfully deserve without actually bribing somebody. And this has been multiplied and magnified over the years. People encounter it daily. And what does that do? It actually adds to the cost of doing business. It makes it well nigh impossible for people to actually, you know, boost output, hire people, service customers very well. It creates an artificial inflation that rips through the entire economy and everybody's actually was up for it. That is the problem. I just saw something, and I believe it's an official report about the EFCC, that the Accountant General of the Federation is being, correct me if I'm wrong, is being investigated for an alleged for the 83 billion naira. That is the whole fact of our state for two years, or that of Edo for two and a half years. Assuming for the sake of example that this, was a, this is a common practice, assume, multiply that in, say, 500,000 different places, different orders of magnitude, what does that do to the economy? So these things are really fundamental. And the president has a huge role to play. A, in being a very good moral compass for the country. In terms of both taking action and through his powers of moral suasion. Number two, the main duty of a president by taking that oath of office is to actually do good to all manner of people in this country, regardless of their creed or their background. And in so doing, people have, human beings from the time we are in our wombs, we're actually feeding rights from the time that we are in our wombs. And immediately we come out. That precious milk of our mothers is what we latch on to, even though we cannot speak or talk or anything. So humans, from time immemorial have got their own desires and wants. And people organize themselves into formal systems to have leaders. The leaders are actually supposed to give concrete expression to our collective needs and desires. So they develop programs and projects and budgets in order to implement these things in the public interest. So the real masters of this country are the ordinary people who decide among themselves by exercising based on their own free will, to choose people as their representatives. And the duty of these representatives is to actually go there, roll up their sleeves, dig in the trenches, and deliver public goods of quality and distinction so that Nigerians can actually be one happy family that are able to attend to their everyday lives. They feel comfortable and Wherever they go around the world, they can actually head, hold their heads high and be proud to be Nigerians. The whole idea is to make Nigeria a peaceful, 
stable, successful country that is globally competitive, that is representative of the beauty of his people, beauty of his land, and the size of his economy. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, there are two things currently that take away a great deal of our income and the income that you could use to implement many of these things that you're talking about. Two things. The first is subsidies on petroleum and then subsidies on power. Now, the one of power is a bit different in the sense that there are those who argue that but power sector is supposed to have been privatized. Somebody mentioned that a while back. So why are we still talking about subsidies? But in the case of the petroleum one, that has been longstanding. And each time there has been an attempt to reform it, to adjust it, or open it up, there are reactions. But over time, the amount that these two things are gulping has increased to such a level that it is now pushing out all the other things that the country could possibly do. So if you take the subsidies on petrol, you take the subsidies on power, and then you add debt servicing, those three items, in many instances, our entire budget is gone. There's very little or nothing left. How do, how do you go about tackling that as president? Okay, so again, this is a very fundamental question, and it actually goes to the root of a current economic crisis, which is quite grave in nature. Number one, I believe our debt is now about $40 billion. Not too long ago, it was about $10 billion. We added $30 billion. Debt in and of itself is not a bad thing if it is efficiently and wisely utilized to generate product productive activity and not consumption. Because you actually contract debt with a view to growing an economy. So revenues generated are then able to service that debt and give you more on top of that. Much of the debt that we contracted was actually consumption-oriented to support subsidies and other overheads of government. Second, the instrument that we used, the debt instruments, are not the kind of optimal kind of instruments that should actually make the cost of debt lower than it should be. Thirdly, you are quite right in my view to suggest that all of these are actually interlinked because they feed on each other. The subsidies that we are talking about, number one is even interest rates. Treasury bill rates is about 4%, inflation is 14%. A lot of the treasury bills are actually being gulped up by government. So they borrow cheap, we're subsidizing them, for them to put it into consumption-related spending. And so in essence, what you're doing is actually creating a subsidy because central bank will regulate and say, you know, 
T-bills are now 4%. They're moving from time to time. So it's very low compared to these very high inflation rates. Second level of subsidies, PMS and diesel and all of that. This has been going on for decades. And believe it or not, Ladi, is actually a myth that was created. A myth once created, people digging their hills, is sold to the public as their own commonwealth and as an oil company, is, as an oil country, oil rich country, this is something that should be a benefit or a dividend to them. It's completely wrong. Essentially what you're doing is introducing distortions in the economy, arbitrage, and rent. And the few people are just feeding fats. The number of people who are actually relying on peers to actually power their vehicles are you and I. In many of our homes, we keep three, four, five, six cars. The ordinary person, most of them actually live in the villages. Where and they are no, where they are not using any. Where cars. they are not, where they, where they are not using a lot, of, a, a, a lot, a lot of vehicles. So these subsidies, the chicken has come home to roost. It has become unsustainable. Where, at a point in our history, where revenues, there's a lot of revenue leakage. We're also not able to generate enough revenues, and so we are left naked like an emperor without, without clothes. And that's why the balance sheet of the government is significantly challenged at this point in time. Diesel was what, 190 Naira? is now 700, making life very, very difficult for people. And exchange rate, don't forget, exchange rate is a very big issue as well. The exchange rate, um, a couple of years ago, when oil was about $30 per barrel, was about 340 Today, it's about 600 Oil is what? $114 per barrel. And that is because of this structural rigidities within the economy, where, in fact, you have multiple exchange rate markets. And for years, both in the Economic Summit and also in other jobs that I've done for, the, for, for various governments, we have continued to say that we need a unified exchange rate mechanism where you need full dynamic equilibrium of prices. The moment you say that there are multiple markets for exchange rates, all you are doing is that Mohammed will add 10 or 20 Naira, pass it on to Umar, who will add another 20 or 30 Naira, and the whole system of prices goes completely out of work. And that now kicks into every possible import that you're making. We should actually be engaged in production because this is a supply and demand thing. If people are involved in production, even exporters now, believe it or not, they find it more beneficial when they export and they get their money to actually round trip it and go and do other things with it. So. What I'd like to say to you in terms of solving this problem is one, to actually design a set of macroeconomic macro policies that are sound and stable, where there's a golden handshake between our monetary policy and our fiscal policy. Fiscal policy does, deals with revenues, 
deals with expenditures, it deals with um, taxes. Monetary policy is all about money supply, is about exchange rates, price generally, interest rates, etc. These two things is like a balancing scale. If each one of them is actually going off on a frolic of their own, without any coordination, harmonization of monetary and fiscal policies, the result is actually what you get. But more importantly, you need very competent general managers. These are technical areas. Highly competent general managers who are actually tested and proven, that understand these subject matters, that can then go and explain to their political masters. And in their sight is nothing else but to actually bring about a system that is actually sound and stable, both for the short, the medium, and the long term. I love you here today. Thank you so much and good luck. Thank you so much. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Thank you. That's our program today. We would, of course, like to hear from you on the conversation. Our social media handles are right there on your screen. You can also listen to this and previous episodes of the program via our podcast. Please visit our website, channelstv.com, to get started. I'm Ladi Akiri Duluali. Goodbye.